Max said when he got silenced by Elijah Muhammad was in fact true. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Congressman Lindsay's uh, suggestion of a watchdog congressional committee over the CIA? Well, I do not uh, favor it, but I think that is a matter for the Congress and the President uh, to decide primarily. We took this country by terror. I'll never apologize for the United States of America, ever. I don't care what the facts are. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. It's very hard to get lost in America these days, and it's harder to stay lost. Took Africans from their country to build our way of ease and kept them enslaved and living in fear. Terrorism. I've come to the conclusion after all these years that there probably doesn't need to be a CIA. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. We bombed Grenada and killed innocent civilians, babies, non-military personnel. We bombed the black civilian community of Panama with stealth bombers and killed unarmed teenagers and toddlers, pregnant mothers and hardworking fathers. We bombed Gaddafi's home and killed his child. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy. We have some claims. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. We came. Saw, he died. <laughs> Mark, are the allegations true that you were secretly a lizard? I don't want to be a product of my environment. Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them.
everything in one world, everything in one world now. If it doesn't come to one world now, there will be no planet. There will be no life on the planet. I want my environment to be a product of me. A lot of killers. You a lot of killers. Why do you think our country's so innocent? episode 12 of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good folks we have crash landed in the heart of the dying empire i've set up a mobile operations bunker and for the next year or so we're going to be roaming freely back and forth through time and space as we chart this haunted land the great satan is on its knees it's true but it's when a snake is dying that you have to be most wary of it lashing out. So we must tread very carefully on our journey here. Anyway, they're still sweeping up the election bunting. So while they clear that crap away, I have a few housekeeping items that I need to deal with. And then we'll crack on. So first, I'm delighted that people have been reaching out so much and asking for new episodes. And again... There'll never be more than two weeks between an episode going forward. Uh, knock on wood. Uh, you can hit us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com with thoughts and suggestions and criticisms, whatever. Uh, the Q&A episode will definitely be coming soon. Uh, I'm kind of holding it in reserve if I run into any research problems with the main series. You know, it's, a, it's an old ancient podcasting trick that was taught to me by... A very lazy man. Uh, second, our American mission will be a non-linear engagement. And we're not going to be exhaustively charting like the whole of US deep political history from the 40s up to now. Instead, we're going to be scooping up little samples of intrigue from whenever and wherever we feel and just asking what we can learn about America's past that could maybe tell us how it became what it is and what that means for the rest of us, you know, going forward. 
So I have a loose structure planned and there'll be a recurring set of, I guess you could describe them as sub-series within the broader sequence. And these sub-series will focus on particular topics at different points that deal with um, Hollywood or more specifically how the fever dream of American pop culture has interacted with the deep state and big business and, and parapolitics. Uh, American tabloid is going to be our organized crime adventure. Lots of interesting things to look at there. And then the project series will cover the CIA's more insidious secret operations. Uh, we'll also be dealing with the road to 9-11 and Silicon Valley as well. Uh, I'm fairly sure as well about what we'll be covering in the broader arc, but there are one or two topics that are still up in the air. Uh, I'm not sure, for example, I'm not sure how deep to go on JFK and Iran-Contra uh, or whether to even bother with them at all, to be honest, because so much has already been said about both of them already. Uh, and I may do an Epstein episode, but I haven't decided about that either. So we'll see if any more information emerges about the case between now and whenever we get to him. Third, you may notice that there is a Patreon link in the description now. And don't worry, I'm not going to start putting everything behind a paywall. Uh, think of it more like a tip jar or something like that. And me as a, a very weird busker, because, uh, you know, I can always use some coin to upgrade my equipment and the bunker and pay for research material. So only if you can spare the bread, you know, if not, then don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to experiment with a kind of pay what you feel model. I've been tying as well with maybe doing a newsletter and putting that behind a paywall as a way to keep more contemporary takes separate from this show, which is ultimately a, a history show. So I don't know. I'll see if there's any real desire for that. But remember that I'm by no means an expert in this stuff and you might end up disagreeing with most of my analysis anyway. Also, I may get to a point where I decide to compile particular episodes almost like box sets, you know, like grouping them thematically. So there is a chance that I might paywall these as their own little things or release them as like audiobooks, maybe with some like extra supplemental material or whatever. But that's a long way down the line. And the main series will always be free. Uh, and I'm also, I'm not going to make a habit of boosting the Patreon. You know, it's not going to become like a frequent interruption to the flow of things. You know, it will simply remain in the episode descriptions like a silent mark of shame. Right. I think that's everything out of the way. And the bunting looks like it's been cleared off the stage. So it's time to kick off the Haunted America series with a look at Alan Dulles, his America and the early years of the CIA. And it's probably worth considering that until World War II, the US didn't actually have a formal spying or espionage apparatus as such. Uh, they had the FBI for domestic intelligence gathering, and they had military intelligence officers, obviously. And they relied on their diplomats and you know businessmen and politicians to collect tidbits of information on their travels. But there wasn't really a, a centralized intelligence agency as such. Uh, you know, an outfit whose purpose was ostensibly to gather and assess foreign intelligence and present its findings to the US government. 
But World War II is what changed all that, and specifically a guy called William Donovan. Now, he may well merit his own episode at some point, but in summary, Donovan's family were Irish Catholics who changed their name from O'Donovan, you know, as a way of assimilating into the States. And their story is one of rising and rising again in American society while still being kept ever so slightly at arm's length from the the real circles of, of wasp power. And like all good Irish Catholic boys... Donovan wanted to be a priest until the legal world turned his head. He married into elite American society and he was a classmate of Franklin D. Roosevelt's, you know, the future president. He served in World War I and he made a name for himself as a daring and tactically astute officer. And he returned home a decorated hero with the nickname of Wild Bill. Uh, interestingly, his background also seems to have left him with quite a lot of empathy for people who were considered outsiders. So he had a lifelong interest in Judaism and a lot of sympathy for the plight of European Jews as the Nazis came to power. Uh, he even refused the French government's attempt uh, to give him a medal until they gave the same one to a Jewish soldier who served under him during the war. So, you know, props for that, I guess. Now, after a failed bid to become governor of New York, actually to succeed Roosevelt. Donovan returned to his work as a lawyer and a, a kind of financial speculator, which was a job that took him all over Europe in the, the interwar period. And although, you know, as we said, there was no formal US intel foreign intelligence service during this period, Donovan was part of a kind of loose association of American businessmen and diplomatic personnel that cultivated relationships with the Nazi and Mussolini regimes and, and fed intelligence back to their friends in the U.S. government. Uh, we can think of this elite transatlantic Ivy League group as a kind of proto-CIA. Many of them would actually go on to be the nucleus of the agency once it was established, and they were distinct from the other factions in the American ruling class. You know, people like Prescott Bush and Joe Kennedy, who favored appeasement and cooperation with the fascist powers. Donovan, like most of his contemporaries in these early 20th century US circles of power, worshipped the British ruling class and he ingratiated himself to people like Churchill and the heads of British military intelligence with his charm and his manners during his travels and he also became a very close friend to William Stevenson who was an MI6 agent who operated in New York City and as World War II kicked off and Britain found itself facing off with with Germany Churchill personally called on FDR to have Donovan be the US ambassador to Britain instead of Joe Kennedy, who he intensely disliked. And once it became obvious that America was going to intervene in the war, FDR was convinced by British spooks and diplomats that the US was sorely in need of its own distinct foreign intelligence outfit. Donovan 
persuaded him to create the Office of the Coordinator of Information, and he was named director. And from the beginning, the COI was broadly distrusted by the more traditional arms of the US military because of its proximity to British intelligence. J. Edgar Hoover, meanwhile, was appalled that his authority had been undermined like this. Uh, he was the director of the FBI, just in case you didn't know. Um, he'd been mulling of the idea of like a global spy agency for years. And he was disgusted that a man who he considered shanty Irish had been given the opportunity to create one instead of him. And I suppose it, it goes without saying that if you know anything about J. Edgar Hoover, then you know that this was a grudge that that guy held on to for life. In fact, it was so intense that, as he always did when he felt like someone had fucked him over personally, Hoover put agents on Donovan and opened a file on him, uh, gathering intel on his affairs and his financial problems. Now, occasionally, you will see someone described the CIA as being the American branch office of MI6, which it's not particularly accurate today, but it was broadly generally true during this window of time in World War II. I mean, Donovan drew up the initial plans for the outfit with Ian Fleming, of all people, and the CRI's New York office was run by Alan Dulles, who was another Anglophile member of the Ivy League elite, who Donovan had personally handpicked to join the outfit. Uh, the office was also one floor above MI6's in Rockefeller Center, and while Donovan and, and Dulles already had a gift for espionage and intelligence gathering, it took the, the tutelage of MI6 officers and British commanders to really tighten up and hone the, the finer details. Uh, they helped them create academies where they recruited the very best agents and they instructed them on sabotage, running informants, self-defense, espionage, and, and the general art of spycraft. And they also showed them how to set up front organizations and create their own streams of untraceable income and cultivate partisan networks in enemy territory. And, you know, I have no doubt at all that the Brits were in turn feeding back everything they were learning about the Americans to the British government, uh, because that's just the game. And in time, Roosevelt merged the COI with the US military's other fledgling intelligence agencies and folded them all into the Office of Strategic Services with Donovan as the head of the operation. And from the outset, the OSS was an outfit that was run and staffed by the US elite. I cannot emphasize this enough. Uh, from a Vanity Fair article about Donovan, quote, Donovan believed in the brilliant amateur, the Ivy League athlete who, without a great deal of preparation, could become a secret agent or commander dropped in behind enemy lines. He went about recruiting men with pedigrees, Archibald MacLeish, the poet and librarian of Congress, and a member of Yale's Skull and Bones, Paul Mellon of the banking dynasty, two scions of the House of Morgan, Henry and Junius, who used Donovan's London Club memberships for clandestine ops, Alfred Dupont, who went on to direct espionage in France, various swells named Auchincloss, Coolidge, and Vanderbilt, and a few showbiz types, including Hollywood director John Ford, who made propaganda films. Donovan 
recruited so many sons and daughters of families in the social register that OSS, it was said, stood for Oh So Social. Many of the recruits had close ties to Britain. Raymond Guest, a polo player, ran clandestine maritime operations and was Churchill's cousin. We don't really have time to get into all of Donovan's adventures in World War II, but he'd become a legend by the end of the war. And after it was all over, America had, of course, emerged as the world's foremost superpower. And Truman, who took over after FDR's death, he was in line with Roosevelt in believing that a strong intelligence agency was a must-have in the developing Cold War. And at the urging of Donovan and others, he had Congress approve the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947. And the majority of the early members were OSS veterans like Alan Dulles and James Angleton. Now, it should be said here that the creation of the CIA wasn't greeted with any particular warmth amongst huge numbers of Americans. Um, it's mostly buried and forgotten now, but the term American Gestapo was used quite a lot in contemporary press coverage to describe the uh, developing outfit. Uh, in part, this was due to a propaganda campaign that still embittered J. Edgar Hoover had been running. And obviously he was being a cynical piece of shit because he ran his own Gestapo already you know but as the decades rolled along and it began to emerge just how many nazis and fascists had been absorbed into the american security state after the war we you know with many of them finding work in the cia together with everything else that we now know the cia became involved with as the years went by there's good reason to agree with that assessment really uh, no matter where it came from and then there's the question of why exactly there even needed to be a CIA in the first place, particularly one run by this group of men with a bunch of shadowy financial interests and connections to people in Wall Street and Washington. And even Richard Helms, who actually became the CIA director in the late 1960s, even he was skeptical about whether the OSS's operations in World War II had actually achieved enough to justify making it a permanent part of the US security apparatus as the CIA. And he said this, quote, I don't think it made any difference or much difference. OSS officers worked their asses off to try to affect the outcome of the war one way or another. There were some successes, but it was not a howling success as an organization. On top of that, a Colonel Richard Park had also counseled against creating an agency that would have so little official oversight. In fact, a report that he compiled described the OSS as a rat's nest of incompetence, corruption, insecurity, depravity, black marketism, and nepotism. Donovan had wanted the directorship of the agency, but Truman passed over him uh fdr before his death had already counseled that donovan was a man who could prove exhausting to keep an eye on and this was an assessment that he also had of alan dulles donovan wound up returning to legal work for a while and kind of bouncing between different government appointments before landing the ambassadorship to thailand and now he continued to act as an informal consigliere to alan dulles and registered as an agent of the Thai government eventually. 
and then help prep the U.S.'s engagement in Vietnam. Uh, he developed dementia, and by the late 1950s, he was so far gone that he was having frequent hallucinations of the Red Army invading Manhattan. And he eventually died in 1957. And by then, the CIA was firmly embedded in the American imperial state. wanted to start somewhere with a single day that epitomizes who Alan Dulles was and the system that he was further refining after he took over the directorship of the CIA in the early 50s, you could actually do worse than go to 1953, to the day that he visited the Hotel Excelsior in Rome. Now, the hotel itself has a pretty storied history. It was commandeered by the US Army during the invasion of Italy in World War II. And thereafter, it became a shorthand for 20th century glamour and decadence. It was used as a location in La Dolce Vita. John Wayne fucked Marlene Dietrich on the Grand Staircase during a particularly wild VIP party. And Kurt Cobain overdosed in one of the VIP suites in the 90s. And from the 50s onwards, the hotel was a prime hangout for American and European elites visiting Italy. So you had businessmen and socialites and politicians, Hollywood movie stars and, and so on. So like on a given day, you could walk into the hotel lobby and spot Liz Taylor drinking martinis at the bar and mafiosi and politicians schmoozing in the lounge and all manner of shady operators entering and exiting the executive suite where Licio Gelli held P2 Masonic Lodge meetings with a range of domestic and international co-conspirators. In fact, this is where Gelli is supposed to have planned the kidnapping of Aldo Moro uh, in one version of that story. In 1953, the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi and his wife Saraya found themselves holed up there after the first attempt at a coup against Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh had failed. Now, we're going to be going deep on the coup of 53 at a later time because we don't really have the space for it here. But for our purposes at the moment, all we need to know is that Mossadegh had been elected as a reformer and he decided to audit the Anglo-Iranian oil company's books and have a rethink, you know, of the profit sharing setup because he saw control over his country's resources as, as key to rolling back the aggressive imperial designs of the West and particularly Britain. And the Shah had, he'd mostly been okay with this up to a point because he was a party boy and, you know, kind of a, a feckless dipshit if you want to know the truth. And while he liked the idea of being able to have a direct say in affairs of the state, it was one of those point of principle things more than anything else at this point. What's important to know is that he was quite a lot like uh, San Nicholas in that he had something like a messianic impression of his own power. He reckoned that God was on his side, you know, no matter what happened. So why get cut up about this guy Mozadek, especially when taking back control of Iran's oil reserves would actually benefit him too. Uh, but the pair of them 
had some personal friction because Mozadek was from the Qajar dynasty and they saw the Shah as a usurper and the Shah felt that Mozadek was impudent and insufficiently deferential towards royal power. So we're at serious risk of getting lost in the weeds thus uh, as a good kind of micro view of the Shah's mindset and his relationship with Mozadek. Remember that the Shah dismissed him from office in 1952 because he was damned if he was going to have his monarchical power questioned. And then he almost immediately reinstated Mozadek after a period of popular outcry because he was damned if he was going to be an unpopular Shah. The British Anglo-Iranian oil company also controlled basically all of Iran's oil and nationalizing it would have left them massively out of pocket. And the Iranian parliament voted to go ahead with the nationalization precisely to shake off the grip of the British Imperium. And from that point, it was game on. So the British organized boycotts and a propaganda campaign against Mossadegh. They weren't crying to anybody who listened that they were being robbed. And they started sending more covert agents into the country to kind of seed unrest. And the Shah didn't really have much stomach for it. Uh, he wanted to drink and fuck and fuck and drink and buy nice cars and expensive jewelry and just generally be liked by his people. A coup by British intelligence against a popular prime minister who'd already gotten the better of him once, where he was expected to be the front man. It's like too much like hard work is that pal. So when the British-led coup attempt failed, the Shah and his wife fled Iran because he'd already been warned by the British in kind of a roundabout way that if he didn't get on board, they'd find someone in the royal family who would. And I figure he was kind of worried that he'd be blamed for the coup failing. Or for payback, you know, reprisals from Mossadegh's supporters. So while he was in Rome, MI6 and the CIA made repeated overtures to the Shah and his wife to try and tempt them to front another coup. They showered them with uh, coats and luxury cars and villa holidays and you name it. They even sent a doctor to Soraya to help her try and get pregnant. And Alan Dulles, ostensibly on holiday in Switzerland during the summer of 53, he suddenly announced to his wife that they needed to make a quick detour to the Hotel Excelsior. And it's never been fully established if Dulles actually did meet with the Shah, but most of the sources I've read agree that he probably did. Uh, the timing of his stay at the hotel is just, it's a little bit too neat. And so what was said is, of course, not known, but Dulles had a gift for persuasion. And by the time he left Rome, the Shah had finally come around to the idea of, of reclaiming his throne. This was Alan Dulles in micro. Uh, even a holiday with his wife was just another cover for a clandestine meeting to further the interests of the, the growing American empire. And that meeting, naturally enough, took place in the luxurious surroundings of a world-famous hotel that was a haunt for movie stars and secret agents. The reason Alan Dulles and the CIA were even a factor here was because the British had turned to the Americans for help in organizing a second coup. Uh, the Truman administration had been 50-50 on the idea, although they were mulling over throwing in behind Mossadegh, but they would have probably gone along with the British eventually. And Mossadegh, for his part, he seems to have held out hope that America would actually be the great mediator here between Iran and Britain. But 
he must have known what was coming the second that he found out that Eisenhower was going to be the next president and he was on board the coup train. Eisenhower was himself talked around by Alan Dulles and his brother, John Foster, who was Secretary of State in Eisenhower's administration. Alan was the head of the CIA by 1953, as we've said, and in a secret memo to Eisenhower dated March the 1st of that year, Dulles said this, quote, the Iranian situation has been slowly disintegrating. The result has been a steady decrease in the power and influence of the Western democracies and the building up of a situation where a communist takeover is becoming more and more likely. So this directly contradicted a previous secret CIA memo from November of 1952 that had categorically refuted the idea that communism was going to suddenly engulf Iran if the, the oils, oil fields were nationalized. But Dulles was adept at shaping these compelling narratives, and that's precisely what he did and would continue to do to bring the Eisenhower administration and the American public on side. His own interests here were multiple. Uh, as a former lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell, which was this shady law firm where his brother Foster had been a partner, uh, Dulles had a number of business links to various oil executives who stood to lose a fortune if Iran went ahead with the oil nationalization. Sullivan and Cromwell, incidentally, also worked closely with the United Fruit Company, and they would use their contacts in the United States government to send death squads after anyone who threatened their vast, their clients' vast holdings in Latin America. And on top of that was, of course, the wider Cold War. And the Dulles brothers fear that Mossadegh might partner with the USSR in any nationalization project. And it was this, more than anything, that Dulles leveraged to bring Eisenhower fully on side. Ike was paranoid about the Reds. And after a couple more memos and conversations with the Dulles brothers, Mossadegh was finished. So Eisenhower gave the OK and the CIA devised the plan, which they called Operation Ajax, and bang. Uh, Mosaddegh was monstered by a propaganda campaign, both inside and outside of Iran. CIA-funded protesters and armed gangs went on rampages against his supporters. He was forced out of office after the army laid siege to his house, and he was eventually imprisoned. The Shah, uh, inspired to take a more direct role, in Iranian politics returned with a renewed sense of purpose and you know naturally the CIA paid off a lot of people to greet him warmly you know with rapture and, and ecstasy as he disembarked from his plane. A more compliant PM was installed and a secret police force trained by CIA agents was unleashed to put down all the residual unrest and dissent and the simmering tension and bad feeling from the way the West had subverted Iran's democratic process here would eventually explode in the revolution of 78, which we'll also be covering at a later time. Alan Dulles, for his part, monitored the entire coup from a covert listening post at the American embassy in Tehran. And accounts of how he and his brother and the other spooks running Operation Ajax greeted the news of the coup's success, it, they described them as purring with satisfaction. 
the entire operation had taken four days. And I suppose it goes without saying that the Dulles brothers and their boys made a huge amount of money from the resulting uptick in the fortunes of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. So Iran was a template for what the agency has gone on to do all around the world right up to the present day. While you were hearing all that, I'm sure it sounded incredibly familiar to stuff that we've seen in just the last 10 years alone. Uh, we mentioned Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, the law firm that both of the Dulles brothers were connected to. Well, Dulles's gift was to create a greater interconnectedness between private corporations and the American security state than, than had ever existed before. So instead of a united fruit executive having to meet with a Sullivan and Cromwell attorney and then a congressman or a senator or somebody from the U.S. military, Dulles could just move all of this wheeling and dealing kind of in-house, so to speak, because he straddled the worlds of, of big business and statecraft and politics. So he would use the intelligence gathering capabilities of the CIA to kind of cannily anticipate where the next peasant revolt or socialist movement was likely to pose a risk to America's overseas interests. And he would respond accordingly. And the press campaigns, the covert operations, the buying off of protesters, the propaganda onslaughts, the black ops assassinations, some of them funded directly by the US government, some of them funded by the off-the-books slush funds that the CIA was beginning to build up. And then the final violent push and the murder or utter humiliation of whoever it is that they've overthrown, that's still the rough template that they've retained right up to the present day. Probably the more um, recent example of that would be Bolivia last year. Uh, the Iranian coup of 53 was it's one of the high points in Alan Dulles's tenure as director of the CIA. And when I was putting this episode together, it struck me time and again just how much he seems to have accurately anticipated about the direction of global politics in the run-up to World War II and its aftermath and how that influenced his approach to running the agency. Now, obviously, I don't subscribe to the great man theory of history. I like to think I am a materialist. So I know that he is just one example of a ruling class that had seen that fascism as a political movement centered around the will of a lone dictator. It was an unsustainable way to run a society. Um, he, Dulles and his friends in, in the circles that he moved in, they intuited that the traditional colonial style empire, well, that wasn't long for this world either. And they were proven right, you know, as Nazi Germany collapsed. And then in the decade afterwards, Britain receded as a global power and its colonies gained independence. Uh, the fact that the British had had to turn to the Americans for help in Iran was a good example of the way the wind was blowing. So instead, the future methods of control that were so necessary to ensure the American century that Dulles spoke about and that were so necessary to kind of hold back the spread of communism and the power of, of the Soviet Union, well, that those, those future methods would be private corporations with myriad holdings in developing nations relying on the US military and the CIA and the international financial sector that they were uh, the armed wing of to kind of protect their assets uh, and their investments. 
Dulles would incentivize his spooks, in fact, by offering them stock options in different companies. And he continued to recruit almost exclusively from the same Ivy League firmament that he was from to kind of ensure maximum class and ideological solidarity. Uh, cultural propaganda through the mass media and pop culture would be tools of coercion and conformity domestically that were kind of every bit as effective as strike breakers and death squads were abroad in America's overseas holdings. The imperialism of the future, as envisioned by Dulles, would need to be diffused and atomized with no single focal point, no king, no Hitler, no Mussolini, that could bring the house of cards tumbling down if it was taken out. So out went the kind of formal, rigid stylings of the British Empire and the Reich, the death camps and total war, and in came the stay-behind networks in Europe, false flag bombings, psyops, dis disinformation campaigns, and covert infiltration. As well as the Iranian coup, 53 was also the year that Dulles signed off on MK Ultra, and we'll be doing a big episode about that in a few weeks' time, so don't worry. But it gives us another good example of his thinking for the purposes of this episode. Because remember that talk of an American Gestapo? Well, for me, it's no accident that the CIA wound up performing bizarre, horrifying experiments on their own citizens the same way the Nazis did on theirs. It was entirely in keeping with the, the power and control at all costs mentality of the CIA and the broader American, Anglo-American ruling class during the Cold War right up to the present day. methods of the agency and the intense secrecy around its operations and the fact that it was largely beyond the control of elected leaders, it led to several congressmen and senators kind of airing their concerns about this growing shadow state in public. President Eisenhower was loath to cross the Dulles brothers by the mid-50s. From contemporary reports, you get the impression of a guy who is constantly to in and fro in on the necessity of the CIA. Uh, one minute he's agreeing with more moderate voices that at the very least the agency needed greater congressional oversight and more accountability. But then a minute later he's agreeing with the Dulles brothers that if anything they should be given an even longer leash and even fewer questions should be asked about what they're getting up to. And every single time Eisenhower made a move to rein the outfit in, Foster or Allen would pop up with another handy report about the growing threat of the Soviet Union or about the, the pollution of America's precious bodily fluids by the Pinker menace. And that would trigger Eisenhower into kind of handing them another blank check. <clears throat> So as a concession to the more concerned voices in his administration, Eisenhower created the President's Board of Consultants on Foreign Intelligence Activities in 56, and he gave David Bruce, who was a diplomat 
Anna Spook himself and Robert Lovett, the former Secretary of Defense under Truman. Well, he gave them the task of looking into the CIA's activities and offering some suggestions for how to improve the quality of the intelligence that the CIA gathered and assess whether it's more extreme methods and operations needed to be reined in a little bit. Uh, so it should be emphasized that this was purely Eisenhower making nice. Uh, he probably had no intention of implementing whatever they recommended if it would limit the, the capabilities of the agency. Lovett and Bruce were supposed to have this report filed inside a month, but they ended up taking twice as long because of this wall of omerta that they encountered from agency staff. And they grew more and more uneasy and disturbed about the things that they did manage to find out. And their final assessment is surprisingly critical, given that you might initially assume they were just another pair of company men on a make-work job. Quote, Busy, moneyed, and privileged, the CIA likes its king-making responsibility. The intrigue is fascinating. Considerable self-satisfaction, sometimes with applause, derives from successes. No charge is made for failures, and the whole business is very much simpler than collecting covert intelligence on the USSR through the usual CIA methods. There are always, of course, on record, the twin, well-born purpose of frustrating the Soviets and keeping others pro-Western-oriented. Under these, almost any covert action can be and is being justified. Once having been conceived, the final approval given to any project at informal lunch gatherings of the OCB, the uh, Operations Coordinating Board, uh, that can at best be described as pro forma. It's a surprisingly sober and critical assessment of an outfit that by the 1950s thought of itself as having you know, the, the God-given right to stomp around the world, knocking over leaders it didn't like, and deploying killers wherever it pleased. And also note the reference to how projects were conceived. It's that technique of diffusion again, of trusting your guys to go off and come up with their own schemes in service of the agency and the American elite, because then they're always one step removed from finding anybody who's ultimately responsible for a given project. And because you've recruited them from places with a proven track record of turning out ideologically simpatico people, you know you can leave them to get on with it. The agency was molded in Dulles's image when he took over. Uh, he was from a world where the real business of state was handled over lunches and cocktails between men of the world in the country club or you know, the gentleman's lounge, uh, mass politics and democracy, well, they were only useful in so much as they might help get your guy in there. And you see this reflected in his conduct working for the OSS during World War II. Uh, we mentioned that he gained a reputation in the FDR administration as someone who needed watching very, very closely. Uh, he was constantly cutting side deals and pursuing his own interests throughout the war. And during its closing stages, he seemed to delight in undermining the White House at every opportunity, um, particularly when it came to the terms of the Casablanca Agreement, which had been worked out by the Allies in 1943. And broadly speaking, this was the Allied plan for how to deal with the next stage of the war effort. But it specifically stated that any deals or bargains with Axis forces were only to be made in the event of an unconditional surrender. 
Dulles reached out to scores of escaping Nazis and fascists and actively maneuvered to protect the ones who might prove beneficial to him further down the line. And this was regardless of obtaining their unconditional surrender. Dulles and all the other architects of what was called Operation Paperclip, well, they recognized that far from the final defeat of fascism, the Allied victory actually presented an opportunity to absorb the most useful aspects of it into the security machinery of the US as it emerged onto the world stage as, as a superpower. His dealings with Reinhard Gellin are a good case in point here. Uh, Gellin had been a Wehrmacht spook who rose to become chief of the Foreign Army's East Intelligence Outfit, which specialised in gathering intelligence on the USSR during the war on the Eastern Front. Uh, he allowed the Operation Valkyrie plot to go ahead, but it's probably that this was more out of hard-headed strategic calculation than any particular ideological opposition to Hitler or Nazism. And after Germany's defeat, he turned himself in to the Americans and soon afterwards he connected with Dulles, who by this point was OSS station chief in Bern. Uh, Dulles helped Gellin navigate the rounds of interrogation that he underwent. And then alongside guys from the US Army's G2 intelligence outfit, they set up a spook outfit called the Gellin Organization, which recruited a bunch of ex-Nazis and Wehrmacht intelligence officers to create an anti-communist, anti-Soviet spy network in West Germany. Uh, Gellin specifically requested CIA oversight of his organization instead of being handled by G2, and he was granted it. And this was a very early version of a Gladio-type network, and it was typical of Dulles' thinking. Uh, he also protected people like uh, the SS General uh, Karl Wolf from the Nuremberg trials. And Wolf had ordered the, the murder of at least, I think, something like a quarter of a million Jews, maybe 300,000 Jews, and he was a committed Nazi. And while FDR was having to reassure a pretty anxious Joseph Stalin that no secret negotiations with Nazi officers were taking place, Dulles was busy rescuing Wolf from imprisonment by Italian anti-fascist partisans and then planning Operation Unthinkable with him. And this was a, a madcap scheme to invade the Soviet Union once the Axis powers were fully neutralized. So that's kind of my rough picture that I'm drawing you of Alan Dulles's broader worldview, you know, his broader project for the American uh, century. Um, but I think we could probably zoom in and see how he handled shit at home as well, uh, because the 1950s are, of course, a pretty fascinating time in American history. Uh, it was in the middle of an economic boom, and the decade was also one of kind of stultifying conformity and Cold War paranoia. The Russians, they detonated their first nuke in 1949, which terrified the US government and galvanized the arms race. And coupled with that was the arrest and trial and execution of Jules and Ethel Rosenberg for spying on behalf of the Soviet Union in 1950. And now, that's an especially gruesome story that I'll probably be talking about in more detail another time. But in addition to provoking a broader reds under the bed panic, it also gave American media and security services the opportunity to kind of indulge their anti-Semitic sides too. And although the US had already experienced a red scare in the years just after the Russian revolution, 
the second one was going to snowball way out of control and lead to a showdown between Alan Dulles and the red in paranoiac Senator Joseph McCarthy. McCarthy was a loudmouth and he inflamed what was already a pretty crazy period of time where the US was panicking about Reds. Well, he inflamed that situation even more when he claimed without any evidence that there were at least 200 communist infiltrators working in the US State Department in 1950. Uh, his accusations grew wilder and more outlandish as, as time went on. And initially with a Republican president like Eisenhower assuming office in, in 53, they saw McCarthy as quite useful. Uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee had already spent the last few years weeding out the last of, of the New Dealers who were left over from the FDR and Truman administrations. And they'd also been sending investigators to put the fear of God into America's cultural centers like Hollywood and the music industry. So you had things like covert surveillance of movie stars and, and you know, uh, industry unions, a network of snitches, and then, of course, the blacklist. And with Nixon as his vice president and Foster Dulles as his secretary of state, Eisenhower was initially content to let McCarthy off the leash. Uh, there were at least 10 congressional investigations into commie infiltration of the State Department alone happening when Ike took office, and he made no attempt to end them. But the paranoia and the fear that McCarthy's witch hunt had provoked, well, it started to blow back on the administration. And pretty soon McCarthy was holding up Senate appointments and openly flouting Eisenhower's authority, uh, questioning how serious the new president was about fighting the Reds on the evening news and in splashy front page articles in the New York Times. And the way that Foster and Alan Dulles reacted to McCarthy's ever-growing megalomania and influence would be quite an instructive contrast. So when McCarthy wanted blood at the State Department, Foster obliged by sending a Fed called Scott McClear to vet the staff there. Foster was protective of his status as Secretary of State because he felt like he was, he'd been born to hold that role. He'd been groomed for that job his whole life. So he was terrified of appearing out of step with the prevailing mood in Washington. And naturally, in an atmosphere like this, once McLeod's team, I think there were about 350 of them or something, once those feds began their investigation, plenty of like factional scores were settled and ladder climbing staffers began to turn each other into McCarthy and his special counsel hatchet man and blackmailer extraordinaire Roy Kern. Remember that name because we're going to be talking about him in episodes to come as well. So hundreds of State Department staff were purged and Foster realized that he'd miscalculated just how fanatical McCarthy and his staff actually were. Um, they ran roughshod over his authority, demanding access to personnel files and interrogating State Department employees on everything from their political tendencies to their sex lives. But the thing is that Foster couldn't quite work up the nerve to confront McCarthy directly. Um, even when his wife threatened to vote Democrat at the next election because of the mess that he was letting McCarthy make of the State Department, he still couldn't bring himself to say anything. 
And while Eisenhower wanted to hit McCarthy with everything that he had, it was Nixon, who was a friend of McCarthy's, who he kind of counseled a different strategy and offered himself as a mediator between McCarthy's office and the White House. But it didn't have much of an effect. Like McCarthy was far gone at this point, man. <clears throat> but in the summer of 53, McCarthy made a huge miscalculation of his own. Um, I'm guessing he was high on the dirt files that Jade Gahoover had been secretly feeding him about Alan Dulles's numerous extramarital affairs and business dealings because he decided to go after the CIA. And I should probably point out here that Hoover and Dulles fucking despised each other. Like, I've, I've already mentioned that Hoover was still bitter about being cut out of the creation of the CIA. And he viewed Dulles especially as someone who'd leapfrogged him up the ladder. Uh, Dulles thought that Hoover was a grasping control freak and he resented the FBI's interference in what he viewed as his family's State Department. Now, rule number one of the CIA, as explained by James Angleton, was to keep a close eye on the activities of all US government agencies because, as Angleton said, penetration begins at home. So to this end, uh, the agency had cultivated networks of informers all over the country who fed them information. And Dulles had a pretty sizable dossier that allegedly contained information that McCarthy was not just a closeted homosexual, which obviously was career-killing news in those days, but that he was also a paedophile. And there were also rumors that, you know, the poet spook, James Angleton, had a file containing pictures of Hoover blowing his deputy director, Clyde Tolson. Uh, one of Dulles's mistresses apparently referred to Hoover as the Virgin Mary in pants. Um, if you listen to the Mafia War episode, uh, we talked about the parties that Maya Lansky would hold where he'd pimp out girls and boys to wealthy and powerful DC insiders. So I'm guessing that if that's true and if the thing about the pictures of Hoover are true, I'm guessing that Dulles had some kind of information sharing conduit open there because Hoover was allegedly a frequent attendee at Lansky's orgies. So Dulles decided to selectively leak some of the rumors about McCarthy's supposed homosexuality to his preferred scandal rag journalists who were all chomping at the bit to take down McCarthy after the chaos that he visited on them and their friends in the industry. And then Dulles visited McCarthy in person and flatly refused to give up any of his men, uh, particularly his analyst, William Bundy, who McCarthy had targeted for investigation due to Bundy's support for uh, Alger Hiss. Uh, who was, he was a New Deal government lawyer and a Justice Department staffer, and he'd been sent down for three years for supposedly perjuring himself while being investigated for spying for the Soviet Union, which that was a charge they could never prove, so I guess the perjury charge was the next best thing. Um, it was the United States Senator McCarthy against the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. And the result was McCarthy being publicly outwitted and humiliated and forced to back off. Uh, Hoover, obviously it was fuming, but the press expressed astonishment that Dulles had faced down this, this witch finder figure and won. 
So that won Dulles a lot of admiration, you know, from the media. And Dulles even found new fans in American liberals. And some of them were quite sympathetic to socialism. Uh, and all this was purely because he'd broken the grip that McCarthy had seemed to hold over Washington and American society. Uh, this is something that we've seen interesting echoes of actually in the present with the whole Russiagate affair, where like lifelong agency staff, like hardcore killers, suddenly became the darling of American liberals with every new anti-Trump or anti-Russia story that they fed to the press. So Dulles was soon, he was inundated with job applications from ambitious young centrist or even center-left bureaucrats who admired the way that he pushed back against McCarthy, which also raises the other interesting policy that Dulles had about actively cultivating direct and indirect relationships with people who were more or less diametrically opposed to his own hardline Republican politics and the foreign adventurism of the CIA. And it, this kind of counterintuitive thinking. It was something that William Donovan had always encouraged in his offices, and it would help the agency infiltrate all manner of radical organizations in the coming decades, particularly through the 1960s and, and the 1970s. Uh, it's a truism of the modern left that they are extre extremely quick to call someone a fed or a spook. And a lot of the time that's just paranoia, but the beauty of the CIA's infiltration methods is that they get people trapped in a head maze and, and jumping at shadows. And very often the CIA hasn't done anything at all. Maybe at most they've just made sure that one of them are obvious front companies has donated to a given independent journalist outfit, which then forever taints the journalist uh, and the outfit they work for. Um, because a big point, a big part of the point is to, saw this kind of fear and uncertainty. Uh, and just, just a digression here, because this is something I, I am fascinated by, but there are more than, obviously, a few left-wing activists and journalists who've kind of found themselves the target of suspicion, uh, especially over the last 10 years with things like Occupy and the war in Syria and, you know, now the George Floyd protests. So I'm skeptical of a lot of the accusations, because believe it or not, I think that one of the more irritating tendencies amongst the, the left nowadays is to be either so blithe about infiltration that it amounts to malpractice, like so indifferent to the idea, so skeptical of the idea, or else they go to the opposite extreme and they become so paranoid that eventually everyone becomes a CIA op. And in fact, I know that just by saying this, there will now be at least three or four people listening to this who think I'm a spook just for, you know, urging some moderation. Um, but, you know, there are a couple of contemporary journalists I've had my eye on for a while. Uh, people who, they kind of get my antenna perking, although it would be extremely uncool to name them because, you know, you should never snitch jacket people without good evidence. But I'm sure you have your own suspicions about this or that writer that you've noticed over the years. Anyway, all this is by way of saying that uh, the best defenses that these guys have against these charges is, oh, well, you know, I was at protest X or Y, or I published this story or that story about some politician. Or I got arrested. I'm showing my face on a stream. How could I be an informer or so on and so forth? 
Well, the Paris Review, which was ostensibly a left liberal literary magazine that attracted some of the most like cutting edge writers of the 50s and 60s is a really good example of how this head maze effect works because luminaries like Hemingway and Baldwin and Kerouac and Nabokov were all published in it and for all intents and purposes the Paris Review is your typical slightly pretentious literary rag that welcomes relatively radical thought and opinion but the Paris Review was itself a CIA front may well be for all I know it was a cover for its founder who was an CIA agent called Peter Matheson Matheson was in turn a Zen teacher an environmental activist a novelist and as of the time of me recording this episode if I recall correctly I think he's the only writer who's ever won uh, national book awards in fiction and non-fiction. Anyway, by 1960, the agency had shored up its domestic base of power and it had become involved or played a role in coups and regime change wars in Egypt, Iran, Cuba, Guatemala, Paraguay, Lebanon, Syria, Indonesia, the early phase of the war in Vietnam, um, the Philippines and beyond. And all of them led to the deaths of untold tens of thousands of people, all of them to either protect the financial interests of the Anglo West or beat back the threat of communism or both. And we'll be looking at some of these in more details in episodes to come, uh, particularly Guatemala, because that's particularly interesting since Edward Bernays was involved in that, that the father of modern PR. And the role that he played in shaping the media narrative around what happened in Guatemala bears some very close uh, scrutiny. But yeah, uh, it's kind of a sad fact though that while the names and the places change, the basic underlying procedure remains the same and it worked almost everywhere. They tried it for an extremely long time. And as we discussed in our Italy series from the 1950s onwards, they also maintained an extremely tight grip of the democratic process in several European countries. They worked closely with NATO and the British Secret Service to create the stay behind networks that we now know as Operation Gladio. And the whole time they were bringing in money from arms and drug trafficking ops and moving it through uh, an array of front companies and fake charities. I would love to know just how many of these front companies and shell companies exist uh, that are, you know, owned in whole or in part by the CIA. I bet there's absolutely thousands of them. Not only that, but as we saw with McCarthy's dance with the agency and Dulles's rivalry with Hoover, the outfit had also spread its influence through the halls of power in the US government to the point where the Dulles brothers more or less co-managed the American state alongside Eisenhower and even the director of the FBI, uh, who was a guy who didn't lack for power and influence of his own. Well, even he could do nothing when Alan Dulles told Joseph McCarthy to fuck off. By the time Eisenhower was leaving office, even he seemed to have grown wary of the monster that he'd allowed Alan Dulles and his friends to create. In his farewell address of 1961, which it was largely filled with the usual bluff and bluster of any outgoing president, there was this section which some, some historians have 
taken to be veiled criticisms of organizations like the CIA. Uh, quote, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. The CIA was born in 1947, almost fully formed, rabidly anti-communist and willing to go as far as it felt was necessary to safeguard American capital. But it was Alan Dulles and men like him who truly understood what the CIA's actual role was to be as the world moved deeper into the Cold War. When he became director, he brought everything he learned about espionage and power politics to bear. And by the end of the CIA's first decade, he'd completed the transformation of the agency into a mafia-style organized crime group for the Ivy League oligarchy, the military-industrial complex, the American deep state. <laughs> That's about everything for this one. That's our introduction to the Haunted America series. Next time, we're going to be diving into our first Hollywood ghost story. So until then, a big thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, remember, again, you can issue communiques to ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. That's ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. Urge on friends and loved ones alike. Review on iTunes and subscribe via your preferred app if you haven't already. And don't get captured. Cheers, guys. Here comes a roly poly.